0: Listen to God's Word as I read 1 Peter 3, beginning at 8. Peter writes, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing." having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is God's holy word. You've certainly heard the saying, don't get mad, get even. That's popular advice today, as it probably has been in many ages. It certainly reveals the selfish belligerence of our times when lawsuits are initiated at the drop of a hat for slights, both real and imagined, that people once would have turned away from or said that's not really worthy of any attention. Road rage, big problem today. Yes, even in... Conservative Lancaster County. I think I'm now in the old population by the way I drive. I used to be in the heavy-footed population, and now the young guys go roaring past me, shaking their fists at me, when I've done nothing but go slow or go the speed limit. The worst-case scenario, of course, of don't get mad, get even, is the disgruntled employee that we learn about far too often on the news, who comes back to the plant where he was fired or the place where he was criticized with an automatic weapon and blindly opens fire until the SWAT team takes him down. I doubt very much that I'm addressing anyone who's about to do that last act of getting even, but there are all kinds of other ways in which we can be swept into our culture's way of saying, make sure you're aggressive enough to defend yourself and keep yourself on top of those who are aggressive toward you. For after all, don't you have to get the last word? Well, the interesting thing is we can get the last word in a totally remarkable way, a way ordained by God and modeled by the Lord Jesus Christ. And I point you back to the latter part of chapter 2 of uh, this letter of First Peter when these chapters that just about seem to glow on the page to me, the, the verses, that is, that glow on the page from 2.21 through 23 about Christ and the magnificent example of him when he was being slandered and spat upon and beaten and he didn't stand and argue or say, you don't know who you're doing this to or "Don't you're going to get it someday from my father. Nothing like that. Silently receiving unjust treatment. Magnificent in his acceptance of those things. He had the last word. He had the last word. The cross was the last word. The resurrection was, was the last word. His ascension was the last word. His reign on the throne of God today is the last word, and His final appearing in power and glory will be the last word. You can be absolutely sure of it. Can we have the last word in anything like the manner that Jesus did? That's what this passage is talking about. 1 Peter 3.8 uses the word finally, and I chuckled a little bit because I thought I would have to acknowledge that Peter was saying finally when he had two and a half chapters yet to write. And that sounds like a preacher, doesn't it? You say finally. All right, you don't have to say amen to that one. <laughs> you say finally, and you've got 15 minutes of more material. We preachers are guilty of that, I think. Remind you of his theme. The theme since chapter 2 has been patient endurance by faith as God's is the ultimate judge of all injustice so that when you're suffering under it and you know you're right, you trust yourself to him who judges justly. And again, that great example of Jesus. And, and you would look at it and say, I can't do that. I can't be like Jesus. I'm not as strong as Jesus is. But let me correct you because if you have the new birth of faith that this letter started out talking about in its first chapter, 1-3, then you are not the old person that was unable to do all of this. You are a new person. You are a vessel of the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of Jesus Christ dwells in you, stirs in you. Yes, you're not the perfection of Christ, but if you have his Spirit by a new birth, you can respond to his call to imitate Christ in these ways. His Spirit makes it possible in your new spiritual life. Now, I'm just dividing this into two uh, points today, and Midway through the sermon in the first service, I thought, I guess there should have been three points, but I'm only having two, so look for two. We begin with 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9. And here I see this being summarized. Disciples of Jesus are called to show the character of Jesus to their immediate world. They show it as a blessing to the people around them. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil with evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you would also obtain a blessing. Well, there are five behavioral attributes of Christ listed here that we could spend a whole sermon just unpacking meanings of the word and everything for each of them. I'm just going to sort of skim past them quickly because I think it's almost better that you take them as a unit, the same way as your five fingers are part of one hand. Here are behavioral attributes that should be able to be recognized in the life of a man or woman who is in Christ, who trusts Christ. These things are in you, and Jesus is bringing these things to completion in you. First, unity, which means one-mindedness. You have the same mind, not just with other Christians, but with God himself. You mind the things of God. Now, there was a time when Peter didn't have single-mindedness with Jesus. Jesus said, I'm going this way. I'm Peter, I'm going off to die. And Peter said, no, you're not. No way. Not you, Lord. Well, that was the old Peter. This Peter has a oneness of mind with the things of Christ. Then he speaks about sympathy, weeping with those who weep. Well, you and I are born selfish, and we'll die with a lot of selfishness still clinging to us, but we can learn to sympathize. Peter did. Love of the brothers is an attribute here, a bond of affectionate attachment between Christians who are all reborn under the same heavenly Father. We're in the same family, so particularly with Christians, there's sympathy that flows, tender-heartedness as we see others in need. And then a tender heart is named here too. Now, that can mean something that I don't think Peter is pointing to. We can hear people say, I'm a sensitive person. And that isn't necessarily good because they might be saying, "Uh, I'm thin-skinned, easily aroused, and unable to bear criticism. That's not what Peter is talking about. He's talking about, I am able to feel what you feel and respond to you with caring and compassion. And then fifthly, in this set of Christian virtues, is being humble. I am more convinced all the time that the one word humility is almost the crowning fruit of all Christian likeness to God and Christ. True humility is a rare thing, and Jesus, of course, was the one who showed it to us best, what it is. In fact, humility describes the essence of Jesus. He was meek and lowly of heart, we're told. He was not inclined to look out for himself first all the time. Peter was, at least originally, when he was Simon. He rose up with his bloated pride and swiped somebody with a sword and spoke before he thought. He wasn't humble at all. But 30 years of Christian growth has shown up in this man now. And he's now looking out for the people of God and looking for the Spirit of Christ, the humble Spirit of Christ, to work and be seen in him and through him. It isn't our right or our place to be able to say, well, wait a minute. Let's see. Sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, humble mind. Sorry, Pastor, I can't be that way. I wasn't naturally constituted like that. Well, you can't get off that way. This is not talking about your natural constitution. It is talking not about how you came out of the womb and grew as a toddler into a youth and an adult. It's talking about your second birth characteristics. And if you know Christ, you do not have a complete excuse for saying, I'm not like that. Those characteristics are not mine. No, I know they're not yours. They're Christ's. And they cling to the Holy Spirit who indwells a Christian. And so Peter can say in 1 Peter three nine these things you were called to. You're called to do these things because Christ in you can bring them to fruition. More and more, step by step, gradually, probably other people see it more than you do yourself, you can have a growing character resemblance to Jesus made possible by that new birth in you. Peter knew this was true because He had finally seen it happen to himself over the many years. Yes, by your first and natural birth in this world, you're not like this. By your second birth, you are summoned to this. And God, by his Spirit, supplies. He is the engine. He is the powerhouse driving these things in you. Just the other day, before it snowed here, you know we haven't seen snow almost all winter, and you're starting to see things that you're looking at your I know I'm one of the few people in the world that even wears a watch anymore, but I do look at my watch to see what, hey, it's March 12th. The forsythia bushes aren't supposed to be in full bloom. The daffodils aren't supposed to be out. I was almost bewildered. I said, wait a minute, it's not April. Where's all this bright yellow color coming from in Pennsylvania? It it, it was, you know, not natural to the landscape this time of year, and then especially when it snowed, and there's the forsythia bush with, yellow flowers and snow on it. Wait a minute. This doesn't compute. Well, I raise that because to me that's a little bit like what Peter is saying. The character of Jesus Christ when it's displayed in his people is going to be so unlike what the world expects to see in you, they'll be taken aback. They might be shocked. They'll say, Well, what's driving that guy to act that way? I don't understand it. That's not the natural way to even drive your car. You're supposed to, you know, tailgate the other guy and cut him off and shake your fist at him. How is it that people can not do that? Well, Peter does something here. He quotes the Old Testament. Your Bible probably has the type set up to show more white space around the words from verses 10 through 12, because it's quoting the 34th Psalm. And Peter's saying, like a good preacher, here's, let me tell you some Scripture that backs me up here. And the call of Psalm 34 that he mentions, that seeing the quality of life that God ordains for his people, if you love life and you want to see good days, do these things, guard your tongue, Watch your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil. And then this pregnant phrase, let him seek peace and pursue it. It's something that can be attained, and you're called to attain it, but you have to be aware of it, and you have to seek it, and you have to practice it. Example, David, who wrote the 34th Psalm. You'll resonate with this right away. If you have some elementary Sunday school knowledge of the Old Testament, you'll remember David in his early life, before he was king, was hunted down by Saul. Saul hated David for no good reason except that he knew he was the next rival to the throne. And so he irrationally chased him around the desert. David was a fugitive. He had to live that way for quite a few years, actually. And there was that occasion where he and his men were hidden in the back of a cave, and Saul came in to rest and apparently must have dozed or something in the in the cool of the cave. And David was there, dagger in hand, hiding behind some rocks, and one of his men said, this is it, David. He's in your hands. Quick, cut his throat. And David advanced quietly with his dagger, but he didn't cut any throats. He cut a little corner. Off of the king's robe and even felt guilty about doing that. And then a few minutes later when Saul awakened, David, I guess, was outside the cave and called to the king. Saul came out. David held up the piece of the robe. Saul understood what had happened. And Saul understood that here was a man who had sought peace and pursued it. And here's exactly what he said, 1 Samuel 24, 17… David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me with good where I sought to pay you only with evil. David won a victory by not fighting a battle at all, not having an argument, not striking back in anger. Almost a wordless victory over his enemy. Romans 12:17 to 21 speaks about the same thing in Paul's language. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all, and if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all, or don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good, as far as it is possible with you. Now, that's an important qualifier because, of course, it isn't always possible. You will have people who will come after you with revenge, with anger, with unrelenting Arguments never resolved, and it won't be possible to seek peace. But you are obliged, you are called to try. And this is not optional. It's your calling as a disciple to seek to give blessing. Let me bring another biblical example alongside. The death of Stephen the deacon, the first Christian martyr in the book of Acts, Acts 7. You probably remember the scene. Stephen was not only a deacon— serving the people but also proclaiming the gospel, and the Sanhedrin had enough of him. Do away with him. They dragged him out, and uh, they had a hit squad for this kind of thing. And those men laid their coats down. Uh, You don't want to, you know, tear your coat or something or get blood spattered on it while you're throwing rocks at a man's head. And uh, they killed him. And you know what, Stephen, if you remember, he said very similar words to Jesus on the cross, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And you say, all right, Stephen was noble. I guess we certainly admire a noble martyr. But really, what what good did that do? I mean, Stephen was dead at the end of it, and what did that accomplish? Well, I'll tell you something it accomplished that's kind of hidden in the text, but it's extremely important. Those executioners laid their robes down at the feet of a particular person, and his name is noted in Acts 7, Saul of Tarsus. He may have even been in charge of the squad that killed Stephen. Now think of that. Here's Saul having a memory of a young man being killed strictly for his faith and saying, Lord, don't hold this to their charge. I believe that was seared on Saul's brain. And I believe it was part of the effect of God's Spirit speaking to Saul when a very short time later, he fell off his horse and fell at the knees of Christ and said, Who, who is it? Who's, who's after me here? And he heard the voice of Jesus. It's Jesus whom you persecute, Saul. I think Saul was haunted by the words of Stephen. And God used that martyrdom to bring Saul to be Paul the Apostle, to humble him and show him the absurdity of his anger against God. Well, here's my second point, and it is the final one, I promise. 1 Peter 3 13 to 17 says this Christians must be prepared to defend our eternal hope. Now, remember, Peter was once so afraid of what people thought of him and fearful of his own life that a servant girl who was supposed to just be letting people in the gate at the high priest's house, you know, saw him, recognized his Galilean accent, and said, Weren't you with Jesus? I'm pretty sure. No, not me. She came back and said, Yes, you were. No. And then another time asked the same question, and he cursed at her. I don't know the man. You see, Peter the Christian was not ready to defend his eternal hope. In fact, at that moment, you could have questioned whether he had eternal hope or not. But through the events of the cross and the resurrection and the ascension and all that came after and the growth of the early church, Peter saw God at work through his life and the other apostles, and he lost his fear of what other people thought of him. And he gained a reverential fear of God and his Son, Jesus Christ, that literally extinguished all lesser fears. When you have faith in one who is Lord over all, it blots out any twinges of apprehension you might have of little people who are over some little thing that you're fearful can harm you. Imagine, he was afraid of the servant girl at the gate. Not Peter now. He wasn't afraid of anything. And in fact, it said when they went to execute him in Rome, he said, oh yes, I'm fine with you crucifying me, but I'm not worthy to die as my Lord did. Crucify me upside down. That's supposedly what Peter said. You see, the cross became such an overwhelming vindication, raising Peter above any level of fear of anything, that he was absolutely ready to defend himself against great enemies or small ones. He was not afraid to die. His trust in Christ was such that he knew he was secure, that the moment after death he would see the living face of his glorious Savior, and we have that security as well. How can we be afraid of anybody in this world? Family member, parent, best friend, neighbor, schoolmate, who we think, oh, I, yeah, I know it says I'm supposed to defend my faith, but I might actually have to actually talk and say the word Jesus. And that's really scary. Really? Scary in comparison to what? God has removed the fear of death from you if you are in Christ. And now he says you are called to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you the reason for the hope that is in you. And you say, well, nobody's asked me lately, so I've got off the hook, I guess. Well, Peter's saying you need to live in such a way that you provoke being asked. You see? The testimony Of a life is what he's talking about here. A life that doesn't follow the worldly pattern, that responds to people in entirely different ways. A life that repents when it's wrong. A life that says to somebody, you know, I was desperately wrong in my thinking or speaking there the other day. Would you forgive me for that? How often has somebody said that to you? It's not said very often, most of the time. Simon Peter originally was a man who would pick a fight with anybody. He did with a sword in the Garden of Gethsemane. He would speak. He would blunder with his voice, with his opinion. But once he discovered that God had the last word, and that last word was the cross and was the resurrection, he stopped being afraid of all the little things that could happen to him. And he was ready to defend himself because first he lived a life that provoked inquiry. Are you prepared to do what First Peter 3.15 says here, to give a reason for the hope of eternity that dwells in you? I could go off here on a long tangent, which I won't, about evangelism. I've heard things about evangelism in our congregation. Some people say, I don't think Westminster is very evangelistic. I don't think you teach enough about evangelism. What sometimes people mean when they say we don't teach evangelism enough is they want to program. Not everybody, but some people. They want to be taught uh, sort of like a sales technique. If you work in sales, possibly you were taken under a wing of somebody in the company and they said, here's how how you present the product or the service and be sure you know how to close, right? Salespeople, closing, very important. Getting the signature on the dotted line. And people think, well, that's what evangelism is. Teach me the little speech and the five or six answers to the most commonly asked questions and teach me how to close to get somebody to sign on the dotted line and accept Christ as their Savior. And if you would just teach me that neat technique, I'd be an evangelist. I want to say to you, would you stop and consider what you have to do before any technique, any closing speech, anything? You have to live the life in which Christ is visible So you will provoke people to wonder, what makes you tick anyway? And they may not even come right out and ask you, what makes you tick? But believe me, you can make them curious. That's what this text is talking about. And in fact, if you haven't made them curious, if they haven't seen that your life is actually authentically, with proofs and evidences different from the common way that people live Most of what you would say afterwards is not going to count anyway. It takes the life first, and then the speech is authenticated. heard a story. It's one of those preacher stories that I admit I heard from another sermon. I don't know the people it happened to, but it certainly sounds like a very believable story. A man was recruited or signed up for the Army, went to boot camp, he was in basic training in the big barracks. This man was a serious Christian. He had his Bible with him, which he read, laying on his bunk in free time. It became known pretty quickly that he didn't participate in the crude talk and the rough jokes and other guys talking about their conquests of women and everything else. He, he seemed to live a quiet life, but he was very polite and exemplary and kind and compassionate in his behavior and they knew it had to do with that Bible that he read. There was a particular soldier with a bunk nearby who really, this really got under his skin. He didn't like this guy, and he didn't like that kind of behavior. So one night, the lights of the barracks were no sooner turned off, but this persecuting soldier's combat boots covered with mud from the day's hike were thrown so that one hit the head of the Christian soldier, the other hit his chest as he lay in his his bunk. The man didn't say a thing, did not say a word. And the persecutor must have, you know, been sitting there thinking, well, I took care of him. The next morning, the man who threw the boots found his boots, parked at the end of his bed, every speck of mud cleaned off, the boots polished to a high shine that would definitely pass the sergeant's inspection. No words. That was the response. Do you think that was what Peter was talking about? That persecution was completely defused by the man being a blessing. Now, probably nobody's thrown combat boots at you lately, But there are ways to translate this into our experience, aren't there? To respond to those who are angry at us, those who revile us, those who criticize, those who mock Christ or even curse him with Christ-like behavior. You are called to this, Peter said. May God give you grace as a disciple of Jesus to seek peace and pursue it and be a wordless blessing in the midst of a society full of angry, fearful people who, above all else, are afraid to die. You're not. Pursue your calling. Father, this is a great challenge. We only have your Spirit to make this possible because it is not going to come from natural willingness or giftedness that we possess. We thank you for that magnificent example of Jesus in 1 Peter 2. May we do more than just admire him. May we bow before your Spirit who calls us to be like him and thus establish the bulwark of a defense for the hope that is in us so that when we might have the occasion to use words, they ring true. Thank you for Jesus' sake. Amen.